TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Tuesday, February 13th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer and coming up on today's show, we're going to be talking veteran politics just about all morning. First up, HillVets founder and CEO Justin Brown is going to be on to let us know about the latest and greatest happenings on Capitol Hill. And I imagine he'll also talk a little bit about the HillVets 100 selection announcements that came out last week. Later, Army veteran Sean Connolly will join us to talk about his run for governor in my home state of Connecticut. Connecticut, despite being one of the smallest states, has long been one of the wealthiest. Many Fortune 500 companies have called the Constitution State home, but in recent years, the state has seen an exodus of those companies and an exodus of residents. That's all led to a bit of an economic downturn. We'll talk to Connolly on how he hopes to fix those issues and how his experience as an Army officer might help in reaching his goals. All of that and more on today's program, but we start, as usual, by welcoming superstar jake hughes into the studio jake how are you this morning i'm doing fantastic eric how are you i'm a little tired and and it's my own fault uh i'm playing a video game at home now i don't get time to, ah. to play games very often when i do it's like after my son goes to sleep and it's uh forza horizon 3 which is a, a racing car racing an open world racing game I spent something like 40 minutes trying to jump a car off of a hill onto the top of a building <laughs> and that was just part of it. When I finally looked at the clock and realized the time, I was like, oh, oh, it's almost tomorrow. I need to go to bed. I got to be up very early in the morning. So, you know, other than that, though, I guess I'm doing okay. This cold is still like hanging on in my sinuses a little bit. And when I wake up in the morning, things are pretty disgusting, but then it clears out and I feel, you know, fairly normal. So there's been a lot of stuff going around, though. Illness, you know? Oh, yeah. This flu season's been killer, man. The flu, and I haven't had, well, I had something that, uh, you know, I think it was, was it last week or the week before where I was out for a day, I, I woke up and had to call you at like, whatever, texted you at like three, four, five in the morning, whatever it was saying, Hey, you got the show today. Cause I'm throwing up and it doesn't seem to be stopping. And boy, did it not, <laughs> but that only lasted for like 24 hours. And then I was kind of like, okay. I don't know if that was the flu. I don't know if that was some sort of stomach virus. I don't know what was going on there. The flu typically lasts a lot longer than 24 hours. But then I had a cold before that, a cold after it. Just the whole the whole virus season this year. You know what I think is a big part of it? What's that? How cold it's been in much of the country, including here in our nation's capital, where everybody had to stay inside. So I've been staying inside with a five-year-old, and we all know that they're just covered in disease. They go to their, he goes to preschool, comes home with every illness that every other kid had. They affect him a little bit, and then they hit the parents, and they knock us yeah, on our your butts. Own, your own little outbreak monkey. Oh, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And this cold, like it was gone by the end of last week. Saturday night, it's back. I'm like, oh, I got a scratch in my throat again. I don't know if it's a different one, the same one. It feels similar, but it's just been kind of this this roller coaster of 
kind of feeling okay, kind of not feeling okay, kind of feeling okay, kind of not feeling okay. And a lot of people have been going through it. There was an event I was going to go to last week with uh, Scout Comms, which is one of the big um, you know, public relations and media relations firms uh, for veterans. They had a, a social thing last Thursday. I was planning on going to it, and I, I had to call out and be like, I'm sorry, man. I really wanted to go down there, say hello to a bunch of people I've emailed with and talked to on the phone but never met in person, and I just couldn't do it. So when I messaged uh, the, the, the head of Scout Comms, Fred, he told me, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Half of my office wasn't able to be there because they were <laughs> sick too. It's just been, uh, uh, it's been a rough time overall, and... I don't know. Did you get your flu shot this year? No, I did not. I didn't either. Now, I don't, I haven't had the flu, though. That's the thing. I had that like 24 hour stomach thing going on, but I haven't had the flu. Haven't had a flu shot in a couple years. I got one when my son was much younger. Like when they're a baby, you kind of need to because yeah. if you get the flu and pass it on to them. It's it's deadly, particularly to the very young and the very old. Although this year we've seen a lot of news stories on uh, on healthy people and and not very old and not very young people uh, passing away from the flu and flu related illnesses. I don't think it's happening at that much higher of a rate. It's just for whatever reason this year it's been reported on more. The numbers. It's like thousands of people every year that die from the flu. Um, the flu vaccine, I used to have to get it. You know, when you were in the army, yeah, they'd yeah. come around and they'd jam you in the in the arm with a needle, just like they did to me in the navy. And then before I got out, they switched to this. Did yeah, you ever, the the the, the oh, flonase, oh, the, or the, the, the squirting gel up your yeah. nose. Oh, that the, was horrible. The just, egg whites. Yeah, just jam a jam a needle in my arm. I do not want to snort anything up my nose, ever. Like I I don't I don't. I don't see the nose as any sort of ingestion point for anything. That's why I never understood people who did cocaine. Like, why? Why are you snorting things into your nose? See, I hate needles, so I always got the 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 flu mist, which is the nose shot, because that's mm. a bitch, do a big honking, sneeze in, or breathe in, and you're fine. Yeah. But it actually came back to bite me when I was in the army, and I had to. I went to get uh, PRK done on my eyes. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I had to wait a month because I had gotten the flu mist. Instead of a flu shot. Mm. So, you know. I, I just, I'm not a big needle fan either, despite the fact that I have tattoos and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, me too. Those are different than, yeah. than a big, big needle that you're jamming in to squirt something into your body that's like alive. Ugh, I don't like the thought of that. But, um, I, you know, I just snorting things up my nose. Although in recent years, I've become a neti pot enthusiast. Which is good for cleaning out the sinuses. Yeah. Actually, I think our ours broke uh, again. You know, those things can be old. really dangerous if you don't use clean water. Yeah, I guess I use. No, clean they, water. like they've had people who got like brain parasites and stuff because they didn't use like distilled water. Well, I'm not going out to the pond behind my house and scooping up the water. Neither just, are they. Yeah, you don't know. That's what they all tell right, you. All right. Hey, I'm just saying, you come in and you start talking about our germ overlords because you've been possessed by a brain parasite, and don't come crying to me. <laughs> it's adorable that you think I haven't yet been possessed by a brain parasite. <laughs> Try to think about it. It explains everything about me if there is a... Uh, a uh, uh, brain parasite running things, but we're running things at connectingvets.com. That's where we connect vets every day. And we are looking to keep you up to date on the latest and greatest. In fact, our Matt Sainsing has a story on how the Pentagon wants to spend that $686 billion in the defense budget that came through. They made that announcement yesterday. So they have, uh, you know, they, they've worked towards this. Uh, they've they've got to have a plan. They can't just say, oh, great, $686 billion. Let's spend it however. Let's just throw money at things as they come up. 
No. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis uh, said he's confident the new budget is what we need to bring us back to a position of primacy. That's what we told you yesterday. Uh, of course, budget caps were raised by Congress by $165 billion through fiscal year 2019 under the budget deal that they struck last week. So they're talking about more equipment, 10 new warships, including an aircraft carrier, which that's, that's a couple billion dollars right there, in 2019, and allowing the Air Force to grow their combat squadrons from 55 to 58 over a five-year period, and an increase in F-35 production from 70 to 77, and F-A-18 Super Hornets from 10 to 24. Uh, missile defense boosted by nearly 25%, 20 new interceptor missiles and silos in Hawaii and Alaska, obviously keeping uh, North Korea in mind there. That's where those missile defense uh, systems would be put into those particular places. None in Guam that I see, interestingly enough. The plan also calls for $60 billion for overseas operations account, which is uh, the way the Pentagon funds wars and other operations overseas, with more than 40 of that $60 billion earmarked for Afghanistan already. Additional troops, the Navy would grow by 7,500 sailors at a time the service is struggling to meet increasing demands worldwide. You know, they would have fixed that if eight years ago they hadn't kicked out 60,000 people for budget yep. reasons. Dummies. The Army and Air Force would see troop increases of 4,000 each. The Marine Corps, uh, they're, they're, they are on such a smaller level number-wise compared to the other services. It looks like there would be an increase, but it's not anything to write home about just because of the, the smaller numbers. One of the more pressing matters to the troops, according to Matt Sainsing, is pay. I think we can all agree that when you're yep. in, that's a big deal. Uh, although the longer I was in, like when I got to be a first class, which uh, it's like six, seven years in, I think is when I put on first class, stopped being as much of an issue because I was making enough to not have to spend anything. Also, as I got older, I wasn't going out all the time and spending my money all the time. I just every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I want to go buy this guitar. If I tried to do that as an E4, I would have been like, well, I guess I just won't eat for the rest of the month and I'll have this guitar and I can go eat at the galley or whatever. As you get older and you start, you stop spending uh, on frivolous things quite as often, you can get bigger frivolous things and be like, oh, my, my first electric guitar that I bought, I went in, it's like a $700, $800 guitar or something like that. And I was able to walk in, buy it, buy an amp, buy the pedals, everything, walk out and be like, oh, my account is uh, still doing pretty well there. That's nice. That's what you want to do. So pay increase, particularly for the junior troops, is a huge deal. And then for the you know, more seniors, they are preparing for retirement and stuff like that. 2.4% pay raise. It's the largest pay increase for the military in nine years. Um, uh, that that's a big deal. That's something that uh, is good. I remember the days back in the late nineties, early two thousands, when we were getting two point whatever percent, two to three percent every. I think it was every six months or so. Like they would give us a, a pay increase fairly regularly. Those kind of stopped by the time I got out. So yeah, interesting, interesting to look at there. But I mean, do we need ten new warships or? Do we need to just maintain the ones that we have better and fund them better? Um, of course, we had the collisions that took place over the summer this year. In fact, uh, and I'm not going to name names, but uh, it turns out a, a guy who uh, I'm friends with on Facebook who was in the Navy, but that's not where I know him from. I know him from before when I was in the Navy. Uh, he was on one of the ships that was in the collision and really? was actually, yeah, and actually went to uh, NJP and was flown in here to do it yesterday 
in Washington, D.C. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I was reading about that and was like, oh, man, you know, this guy, uh, he, he was, he'd never been in any kind of trouble before. I think he's a chief or a senior chief uh, and was basically uh, after the collision, I guess they found him in some sort of fault and they flew him from, I think they're home ported, uh, I think they're West Coast. Yeah, they're Pacific Fleet. So they're out in like San Diego, I think, or Washington, one of the two. Uh, maybe Hawaii. I don't know which one. Anyway, flew him out to D.C. for captain's mast, non-judicial punishment. Um, and he posted on social media yesterday that uh, that the charges against him were dropped, but they also had some stern words for him. So, you know, he was uh, he, he made out better than he was uh Better than he could have, I yep. suppose. But yeah, interesting to see like a guy who I knew before I was in the Navy. So this is over 20 years ago that I knew him, um, grew up in the same city. He, uh, yeah, he was involved in, in some way, shape or form with that crash. And I'm, I haven't reached out to him because I don't believe he's allowed to talk about it. Uh, I'll see if I can uh, find any information from him. But that was that was fascinating to see. But yeah, I mean, 70 billion for wartime funds, 60 plus billion, 40 of it earmarked for Afghanistan. It's a lot of money, and of course, if something else flares up, if, oh, God forbid, the Korean Peninsula, after the Olympics are over, things go back to normal. Of course, now at the Olympics, Kim Jong-un's sister uh, smiled, so everything is okay. Right, yeah, Jake? oh yeah, she's stealing the show. You know, she's fine over there, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter that her brother is killing people in the streets and doing all these other horrible things, but she has a winning smile. Oh, you know, that smile, I'm sure it's totally real and everything. It's not like she's the director of propaganda and agitation for the North Korean, uh, P- the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as North Korea funnily enough calls itself. Oh, wait, yes, she is. She is the director of propaganda and agitation for North Korea. She's the one who puts the smiling face on the murderous regime that's killed hundreds of thousands of its own citizens. Uh, interesting, yesterday I was seeing a lot of uh, CNN's own people coming out against uh, their article on that, like Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper, who was host of the Vettys, the Vetti Awards, which happened just a few weeks ago, uh, he came out and said, like, if you think that uh, if you're choosing Kim Jong-un's sister over uh, an American politician like Mike Pence, you really need to do your research on North Korea. Uh, so he, casting a little shade at his own organization there. Oh, I already saw the other posts saying, well, when was the last time North Korea did this and did that? America's worse. Yeah, right, pal. Yeah, no, no, we're really not. Uh, there's, there's hyperbole and then there's stupidity. And when yep. you start talking about the United States and North Korea in similar ways, all you need to know about North Korea, and I know quite a bit about it. I've read a lot on the subject. I've never visited uh, the Koreas. I know you were stationed in the Koreas, so you know a little bit uh, about it from that first-person perspective, but from doing quite a bit of research in college and then on my own while I was in the military, it was just a place that fascinated me for horrifying reasons, obviously, but I always found it fascinating. All you need to know about North Korea is at the border. What's the parallel? The uh, 39th? 38th. 38th parallel? There is the the village, essentially, where there are American and South Korean troops on one side, North Korean troops on the other. It's those buildings where the, the North Koreans and South Koreans meet occasionally, uh, and it's basically the border cross point. On the South Korean side, the South Korean and American military are watching the border, making sure that the North Koreans don't come over. On the North Korean side, their soldiers are facing inward to their country to make sure no one tries to leave to go to South Korea. That's all you need to know about North Korea. 
People are literally willing to risk their lives to escape from there. When's the last time you saw uh, border guards on the U.S.-Canadian border shooting at someone for trying to go to Canada? Oh, geez. I know. I read this story one time. No. The other way around, maybe occasionally when people are coming across the border uh, into the country and not doing what they're supposed to, you might see some examples of, uh, of people being detained, arrested, not shot at unless they shoot at the border security first. But in North Korea, I mean, we just saw a North Korean soldier escape and went through, through the video that they had there and then night vision or heat vision, I suppose it was, uh, the infrared, you were able to see that they shot him and he was still able to make it across the border. Actually, one of the North Korean soldiers that was chasing him uh, came across the border very briefly and then went back when he realized where he was, I think. But yeah, because yeah. it's very interesting. The building you're talking about where they meet, you walk in there and when you take a tour, you walk in the building and they literally say, okay, do you see this tile right here on the ground? You cannot step past this tile. Yeah. If you step past this tile, the North Koreans will arrest you Yeah. because that's, that is their, that is the line. It's yeah. very, very and they're, and they're watching. I've seen video taken from inside of there when on, you know, different media organizations and things have gone through. When you are in that building as part of a tour or for whatever reason, when, when our military goes in to clean it or whatever, uh, the North Koreans are outside watching through the windows. They're just staring at you. It's, it's a, it's a, as I said, fascinating for all the whole worst reasons place. And uh, the more you learn about North Korea, the more you understand like, oh, oh, no, this is not like anywhere else in the world. This is someplace that is horrifying. It's what they do is despicable. And it's all based at keeping the ruling family in power. Uh, and he's willing to take anybody out to do so, including his own family members. He had his brother who was an expat. He wasn't even living in North Korea at the time. Had his brother assassinated at an airport in Hong Kong using VX. I mean, dude, think about that. So you have that going on. He had, uh, I believe, one of his uncles uh, executed using an anti-aircraft gun, if I remember correctly. They've executed people using flamethrowers, and, and they do it to make a statement. They make a spectacle out of it to say, hey, you do something wrong, this could happen to you. And when they do get food and when they do get aid and they do get things like that because they're having a, a bit of a famine issue for the last couple decades in North Korea, they use it to feed the military. They're not interested in feeding the people. So, yeah, anybody out there who's on that like, well, we're just as bad. At no, we're not just as bad. Stop, please. And Jake, you've been to Korea. What What is the overarching feel of the South Koreans uh, when it comes to North Korea? Do they think about it a lot? They generally try not to think about it because it's for so long, it's been an ever present threat that they just they try to keep it out of mind but every now and then when you go outside like traveling out of seul towards the north you can see like gun emplacements and stuff where they're oh, yeah. ready just in case oh yeah and you have to be because that that's what happened with the korean war the north koreans just one day came through and started boom boom, boom dropping bombs attacking uh, that stuff will happen Turning our sights back to the United States and an issue that Connecting Vets has been dealing with uh, for quite a while, starting with a report from our Matt Sainsing and then done an interview with a gentleman here on this show in regards to the Mare Island Naval Cemetery. Oh. That's the one out in, it's in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was the first naval installation on the West Coast. Uh, it was shut down in the 90s due to BRAC, base realignment and closure, one of those BRAC periods. Mare Island was shut down, was no longer deemed no longer necessary. Well... There's a military cemetery on Mare Island that includes a couple Medal of Honor recipients. It includes uh, some Russian sailors who died while fighting a fire in San Francisco. It's a really fascinating historical place. 
that was taken over uh, by local authorities and the local authorities didn't really do much to keep it up. Now they didn't have a lot of money to do much to keep it up because they're having some economic problems in that area. But there's a group of people, including Ralph Parrott, who joined us on the show, who've been working to do a lot of stuff with the Mare Island Naval Cemetery to get it back ship shape, man. It's a Naval Cemetery. Get it looking good. Uh, those Russian sailors we talked about, well, the Russian consulate under the cover of darkness, like in the middle of the night, came in, fixed up their stuff. I mean, they've taken care of uh, the Russian graves there, which then a bunch of people got angry that they did that. Like, this isn't your property. Yeah, but it's their citizens who are buried there. They yeah. wanted to do it. I, I kind of understand why they would do that, particularly when the place has been, you know, falling apart in essence. Um, there is now a petition on change.org to get President Trump and Secretary Shulkin to repossess the Mare Island Naval Cemetery, saying, hey, the local authorities out there just don't have the means to get done what needs to be. So Nestor Aliga is the man who started this petition uh, to President Donald Trump and five others, including David Shulkin, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And it says, we respectfully request the executive branch, President Donald Trump and Secretary of Veteran Affairs, Dr. David J. Shulkin, to honor the military service of our nation's veterans by repossessing and assuming ownership of the Mare Island Naval Cemetery by fiscal year 2020. The Mare Island Naval Cemetery is a national shrine, but its deplorable condition is a shocking disgrace to the honorable service, uncommon valor, and selfless sacrifice of our courageous veterans buried there, and even worse, to the dignity of our great nation. So you have uh, a lot more on this petition on change.org, but it says that uh, the MINC, which is the uh, uh, Mare Island Naval Cemetery, is a national shrine, has about 1,000 graves, including veterans who served since the War of 1812. It's designated as a National Historic Landmark. Final resting place for three Congressional Medal of Honor recipients, James Cooney, William Halford, and Alexander Parker. Also buried there, Anna Arnold Key, the daughter of Francis Scott Key, who wrote our national anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. So they're looking for the federal government, for the president and the secretary of the VA, one or the other. I think either one of them could probably work on getting this done to get the Mare Island Naval Cemetery back under federal control so that it's no longer no longer the problem of a local government that has a lot to deal with. You know, I think that's the thing. They're not... As we talk to Ralph here, they're not necessarily saying like, yeah, the local government is garbage. No, they're saying they understand the local government has a lot of things on their plate and they have people that they need to deal with in the area where they are. Let's let the feds take care of this. I mean, this is a military burial ground. The military or the Department of Veterans Affairs in this case should be the ones taking care of it. I mean, that makes sense to me. I absolutely agree because these are like the like the petition said. I don't even need to say anything. I could just repeat what the petition said that these are honorably served served veterans and they deserve to have their memories they deserve to be memorialized properly. If you go to change.org and uh, search Mare Island Naval Cemetery, you can see it come up. You can read more about it and uh, you know decide if that's something that you might be interested in signing on for but this is a place where you know the, the discussion came up with the please stand controversy around the the super bowl with the national anthem and the flag and everything but you know my uh my op-ed that i wrote on the site focused on the fact that there are certain symbols well the op-ed actually focused on how the nfl are a bunch of hypocrites who won't take a stand on anything until someone asks people to stand for the national anthem which i thought was kind of gross but there are certain symbols that as a society we have agreed have specific meaning. Our flag, a wedding ring, a gravestone, 
And the gravestones of our brothers and sisters in arms, people like Francis Scott Key's daughter, people like these three Medal of Honor recipients, those are things that uh, I think deserve some respect and deserve being taken care of. After we're gone, whatever you think happens to people, if you think they ascend to heaven, if you think they just turn into worm food, you still want to keep their memory alive through uh, various ways, whether it's keeping an urn on your mantle, whether it's having a headstone that's that's kept in nice order, it's important to do so. And as there are you know, people that bury there who may not have any family members who remember them anymore, that may not even know that they're there, that's where I think it is the military and the government's job to take care of those. It's kind of like, imagine if Arlington, if they just stopped taking care of that, turned it over to the local government who didn't have enough money to maintain it, what would that be like? The national outrage would be stunning. This is a military cemetery. Three Medal of Honor winners in there. Uh, the outrage, I think, should be there right now, and not even just outrage, but just a desire to get something done and to make sure that it's taken care of and to make sure that their final resting place is taken care of. Because as they said, over a thousand buried there. Yeah, there's three Medal of Honor recipients. And yeah, a couple of those are from a time where the Medal of Honor was kind of like the only military medal that they gave out. Everybody just kind of seemed to get one if you did something really good. It doesn't matter. There are a lot of sailors and I imagine soldiers as well buried there. And it's kind of on us to make sure that their final resting place is taken care of. So, again, that petition is at change.org, and it's Mare Island Naval Cemetery, M-A-R-E, Island Naval Cemetery. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is our producer, and we will be back right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Tuesday, February 13th, 2018 edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer in ConnectingVets.com. Well, that's your website. Entercoms, ConnectingVets.com, Connecting Vets every day via news, culture, help, careers, our great podcast content, and great information from our many wonderful partners. If you go to ConnectingVets.com right now, you'll see reports on how the Pentagon plans to spend that $686 billion with a B defense budget that they're talking about. How about Israel striking targets in Syria? What that might mean for the possibility of a larger regional conflict? How about benefits in your backyard? We've got all of that and so much more coming from our team of veterans. For example, 13 years in the Navy for me, 13 years in the Army for Jar- for, for Jake. Join us together. We're a 26-year E-12, which basically means we're the greatest thing that's ever happened. That may be a slight exaggeration, but eh, we do that from time to time here on The Morning Briefing. Our next guest currently serves as a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves. He's also an attorney and recently held the position of commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, in that post, he was able to help Connecticut's veterans. But now, well, he's hoping to take on a new job which will allow him to help all of Connecticut's residents. But this job is one he'll need to be chosen for by the people. Please welcome to the show Connecticut gubernatorial candidate Sean Connolly. Sean, good morning. How are you today? 
Good morning, Eric. Great. Thanks for having me on this morning. It's absolutely my pleasure. So we're going to speak about the fact that you're running for governor in my home state of Connecticut, as it happens. But first, let's talk a little bit about Sean Connolly, the soldier. So as I mentioned, currently serving in the Army Reserves. I understand you did some active duty time as well. Tell us a little bit about that service. When did you join? Where did you go? What did you do while you were on active duty? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. No, I uh, I started my my service in uh, in college. Uh, I was in ROTC, won an ROTC scholarship. I got my commission in 1996. I graduated from Bryant, uh, then Bryant College in in Rhode Island. It's now Bryant University. And while I was initially uh, scheduled to go into uh, field artillery, I took an ed delay, an educational delay, and went on to law school first down at Catholic University in D.C. and uh, got my degree, and then uh, went on to active duty for uh, seven plus years in the Army JAG Corps. My first assignment, I was with the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault down at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, of course, uh, graduated from the uh, Sabolowski Air Assault School and uh, did a little over three years with the 101st. And while I was there, so I was there from about 2000 to uh, uh, 2003 and uh, deployed in Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, in, in the initial phase uh, in, in uh, the winter of 2003. I was with... Uh, uh, while while at Fort Campbell, I was with two two brigades, really the uh, 159th Aviation Brigade and and the Division Support Command. But I deployed with the 159th Aviation Brigade, Thunder Brigade, to uh, to Kuwait and then into Iraq. Uh, was there was there was there judge advocate? You know, I I was the the brigade legal advisor. So you know, talking about operational law, law of war, uh, really just be traveling with the, with the brigade. You know, uh, convoying our way up from uh, Kuwait uh, eventually stopping in Mosul, Iraq, uh, was there for, again, the initial combat phase. It, it uh, quieted down for a little while and, uh, then came back to, was pulled to come back to, to the Pentagon to work with the uh, military commissions, setting up the trials by military commissions for the detainees down in Guantanamo Bay, uh, out of the office of the secretary of defense, uh, was there for a couple of years and then, uh, did, did two more years in Virginia and then transitioned into, uh, into civilian life while maintaining my army reserve career. And let's speak about that transition, because as you mentioned, still serving in the reserves, you're a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves. But of course, uh, you're going to have a second transition when you finish your time in the reserves, but you've already had one, leaving active duty and going to work in the civilian world while maintaining that reserve career. What do you remember about that transition period and any obstacles you may have faced and, and any advice you would give to others who are preparing to or going through that transition period right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. But well, my transition, I would say I was I was luckier than, than many others. I had a fairly smooth transition. One of the reasons was because I stayed in the Washington, D.C. area where there there was a, a good population of, of veterans, uh, of those who are serving on active duty still, of those who are serving in the reserve. And being a JAG, I transitioned into a law firm, an international law firm, but the office that I transitioned into had Many members who had served in the military, and so we still had that uh, that camaraderie within an office, uh, even in the civilian side. And again, I continued in the Army Reserve, so I was right there working out of Virginia in my reserve career, uh, and, and still had that uh, that significant uh, connection. Um, so it was fairly smooth for me, and I maintained a, an area of practice that was connected to government, to government contracts, and and so really had that uh, ability to stay in touch and stay connected. Um, for, for others that, you know, especially having been uh, back here in, in Connecticut, I, I eventually moved back to Connecticut after serving in the law firm. Uh, I grew up here in Connecticut, East Hartford, live in Heber now. But I joined a, a, a company called Pratt & Whitney, uh, 
the military engines division uh, where they make engines, obviously, for, for the F-135, the F-35, the uh, F-22 Raptor, and the F-15. Again, had another connection to, to military, so it, it made that transition easier easier for me. But as I moved on, as I became appointed to be the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, where here in Connecticut we have over 200,000 uh, veterans, uh, I was able to to uh, to see many of the many more challenges that uh, that our veterans face in in transitioning into the uh, civilian uh, side. I always I, w- I was always that cheerleader. Whenever I went to uh, to companies, whenever I went to state agencies, I would always let people know if they didn't already that you know they need to hire veterans and and they need to hire veterans of course because of of what you and I already know that that they're smart and and highly trained and, and of course hardworking, dedicated team-oriented leaders who, who are comfortable in changing in dynamic environments. And so I, I, I always uh, I always push that. And, and working with our sister state agency, the Department of Labor, on programs like Step Up, which incentivized our employers to, to take on, uh, on, on veterans, those who didn't, weren't familiar with the service uh, of our men and women in uniform and how they can transition and be such successful members of their team. You know, taking away that... Uh, uh, insecurity that oh my gosh if i hire a veteran uh, you know what's what what could happen mm. you know there are a lot of interesting aspects of of what you just said the fact that there are two hundred thousand veterans or so in connecticut a smaller state a population of 3.5 million or so people in the state so veterans uh, a relatively small percentage of that population and of course one of those veterans is our guest right now sean Connolly, former commissioner of the connecticut department of veterans affairs who has declared to run as a Democrat for governor of Connecticut. So, Sean, let me ask you, I know that uh, Daniel Malloy, former mayor of my hometown of Stamford, Connecticut, who served as the governor for a while up there, uh, decided he was not going to run for re-election. What made you decide to seek out that job, which, uh, you know, in many cases, it's a pretty thankless job where you're going to be under a lot of pressure from a lot of people. What made you decide to go for the number one seat in Connecticut? Yeah, I, I get that question every day. So why the heck would you want to do something like this? And uh, including for my dad, who's uh, who's actually from Ireland. He came over 52 years ago last month from Ireland. Uh, you know, it, it, back growing up here in Connecticut, you know, at, at some point I probably thought that, yeah, I would do some service uh, like that, maybe some elective service. That went away, you know, after I after college and getting on active duty and then eventually getting into the corporate world ha- was having uh, – you know, married and two boys and, and we were having, uh, you know, a good life. And, uh, the opportunity came up to serve though. When, when I was recommended to serve as commissioner, I was actually appointed by, by the governor. And it really just, uh, it was an extraordinary opportunity to, to, to serve uh, particularly our veterans, uh, but service in general. And, and early on in, in my time, in my tenure as commissioner, veterans of all eras and, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, all all the way going back to to World War II veterans. But veterans started to say, Sean, hey, when are you going to run? You know, when can you bring your style of leadership to the Capitol? And and I would say, you know what, we got so much to do. No, we're we're, we're focused here on on the Department of Veterans Affairs. And then you know, over time, the, the, of course, the governor announced he wasn't going to run, and and it just kept uh, being voiced and voiced to me. And and so my wife Carol and I talked about it and said, you know what, let's 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 do this. We can offer something a little different. Um, we can offer the piece that, that veterans bring to the table, which is service, service over politics, bringing the leadership to to get to results and, and having that collaborative results driven leadership to get things done. Because as you as you know, I'm sure your listeners know here in Connecticut, 
we've we've got some uh, we've got some challenges, and uh, I've called it a crisis. I've called it uh, an economic crisis, and we have mm. to we have to bring that leadership that is collaborative, that is you know not finger pointing, not uh, not just figuring out who's doing what wrong, but really come together and, and get things done for the people of Connecticut. That's an interesting thing, again, as someone who was born in and lived in Connecticut for for most of my uh, childhood, and then again for a year after I got out of the Navy, Connecticut has always been, despite being one of the smaller states in the Union, one of the wealthiest, although in recent years, and there are various uh, reasons for it, some people point to uh, hike in taxes on some of those Fortune 500 companies that were based in Connecticut who then decided to move out along with other numerous issues. As you said, a bit of an emergency going on in Connecticut, if you ask a lot of people that live up there and in the financial aspect and the budget aspect. How do you think that the state of Connecticut can get by and how do you think your leadership will help them to uh, achieve stopping some of that bleeding that's going on? Sure. You know, I I mentioned I I called it a crisis and I did, but I also think it's a solvable crisis. And uh, I, I started my exploratory campaign in October, uh, but I declared my candidacy for governor in January. And when I declared my candidacy, I also re- released my economic plan. Um, you know, I've, I've said that uh, I, I don't think we can tax our way out of the crisis that we're in. Uh, we have to do a number of things. One is we have to uh, re- do some restructuring. We have to be more efficient and effective. It's what we did at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Each year I was commissioner, our, our budget went down, our resources went down, but we still got things done by being innovative, partnering, uh, being being agile, flexi- flexible. And we have to do this, the same thing at the state level. Uh, but we have to invest in our future. We've uh, been a state where, you know, I mentioned Pratt Whitney. Pratt Whitney was, was once a startup. My grandfather came in and got a job there in 1943 as a groundskeeper. I later came back as, as the global ethics and compliance officer. We've got to uh, get back to uh, small business, encouraging those entrepreneurs, including veterans, uh, because we have uh, many veterans who, who are here in Connecticut. Uh, 30,000 plus of, of our businesses uh, are veteran-owned businesses here in Connecticut. Uh, so encouraging small businesses to start to grow here, uh, scaling up existing businesses that are already here. Uh, you know, we, we didn't make that Amazon list that I'm sure you and your your, your uh, listeners are familiar with. And I say forget about Amazon. We've got over 6,000 technology firms here in Connecticut that uh, we can we can identify and help to scale up 10 jobs each is, is 60,000 jobs. That beats out the 50,000 jobs that Amazon would have would have brought. And of course, our larger employers, I think you mentioned it, that that uh, you know, businesses leaving, and, and we have had businesses leaving. Just last week, Mass Mutual announced that it was taking out uh, uh, many, many jobs, hundreds of jobs, and, and taking them to to Massachusetts. And so, on that front, we have to continue relationships, not just when they're threatening to leave, but uh, but uh, all the time. We have a huge issue with transportation uh, infrastructure here in Connecticut. We're rated uh, the worst when it comes to our roads and highways, and that contributes to more than half of our fatal accidents. So from a safety issue, we have to work on that. But there's also economic aspects to that as well. You know, companies want to see a stable and predictable uh, transportation infrastructure, uh, you know, viable options to move their people and and products and and ideas. And that includes not just great roads and highways, but, you know, high speed Internet throughout the state, uh, railways, um, leveraging our airports uh, and those kinds of things as well. So. There are there are a lot of things that we need to work on, but I've said from from the start that my first, second, third priorities are all the state's economy because that's the central unifying issue that affects us all. We need more and better paying jobs for for the people of Connecticut uh, to, to, to 
move forward and to increase uh, increase our, our tax revenues and tax bases base that way. You know, you mentioned the roads and the infrastructure. I can tell you that the 95 corridor from the New York border up through Bridgeport is one of uh, the most horrifying places to drive in the country. <laughs> I've driven in many places, and, and I'm also a Harley-Davidson rider. I can tell you, riding oh, a Harley on that stretch of 95, that is, uh, boy, that, you have to be a brave human being to be willing to do that. So, uh, yeah, getting that infrastructure fixed is certainly one of the things that uh, you would hope that a gubernatorial candidate would be looking at. We're speaking to one right now, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Connolly serving in the Army Reserves, and now seeking election as the governor of Connecticut. And, Sean, you are now, of course, uh, in the Democratic primary season, essentially, and up against uh, a large number of candidates, as often happens in primary races. I see some names that I recognize on there. Uh, Ned Lamont, a businessman, being one of them. Joe Gannam, I was somewhat surprised to see on there. Mayor of Bridgeport, uh, also convicted uh, a little over a decade ago of 16 federal counts of corruption charges. So, again, was kind of surprised to see that name on there. But... You know, when you look around at the the rest of the field in the Democratic primary, some of which, uh, even if it may be for negative reasons, may have some more name recognition than you. Uh, do you think that puts you behind the eight ball a little bit or how do you see uh, you fitting into the Democratic primary race and how can you excel in it? Uh, you, you know, we, we, we're we continuing to push that, continuing to push uh, my name. I'm getting out and about all around the state. Uh, I visited many towns and, and cities talking to their committees. Um, I've been doing forums across the state, and I've also uh, launched a jobs tour after I launched my economic plan. And so I'm getting around to incubators in Connecticut, like BioCT in Groton, Connecticut, where they have a science and technology incubator, to companies uh, like Habco, which is a, a supporter, a supplier of, of Pratt Whitney and other major suppliers, looking at uh, our community colleges like Quinnebog Valley Community College, uh, that has an advanced manufacturing center where students can go for one semester and within one semester they have a job that pays $14 uh, an hour as an intern and within two semesters they can get a job paying 20 plus or more dollars an hour at Electric Boat, at Pratt & Whitney, at Whitcraft. Uh, so there's there's a lot of uh, great things that I'm doing. I'm focusing on, on the issue at hand and, and that is the crisis uh, that I talked about. But the other thing that differentiates me, and, and it really is different, out of there are 11 candidates on the Democratic side that includes declared candidates and exploratory candidates. I'm a declared candidate. Uh, but I bring a three-tiered experience, and that really is my, my military experience, my corporate experience, and my most recent experience running for or, or running a state agency as a senior, uh, senior executive. And as I traveled the state at first as commissioner of Department of Veterans Affairs and now uh, more recently as a candidate, I hear from people that they are hungry for, for something different. They're hungry for a different style of leadership. And that's really, that's really exactly what I bring to the table, which is, uh, you know, a, a collaborative results-driven leadership that uh, focuses on getting things done for the people of Connecticut. And for too long, I mean, you see it at the national level, of course, but uh, at the state level as well, just the, the divisiveness, the, the finger-pointing. And I think, I think that's uh, something that, uh, that veterans can, can also bring to the table, which is a bit of humility uh, authority as well to get things done, but also that 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 uh, that collaborative piece to, to bring people together to get things done for for the people of Connecticut. 
You mentioned a company there, EB. I actually have uh, family members who've worked for EB for many, many years. And a question that I want to ask you as a, as a veteran yourself and still currently serving in the Army Reserves, what role do you think the military and veterans play in Connecticut's future? I mean, a lot of people may not know about this. They may know about Groton in New London, the submarine base and the Navy facilities, but you also have the Coast Guard Academy. You have Electric Boat. You have Sikorsky uh, in Connecticut as well, building Blackhawks and all sorts of other helicopters up there. What sort of role do you see the military and veterans playing in Connecticut's future and, and the military industrial complex? And do you think it's something that could be increased to kind of offset some of those losses that have happened in the recent years? I sir, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. With electric boat, you know, we've we've had uh, about two subs a, a year and, and moving towards uh, three subs a year. The electric boat has announced, even just within the last couple of weeks, that. Uh, uh, re-emphasizing that they're hiring thousands of people over the next several years, and and I worked with Electric Boat directly as commissioner in that they they have a percentage or close to it that they like to keep, which is twenty percent of their workforce being veterans. And so, as commissioner, I, I worked with them on on figuring out how do we find the talent to continue uh, uh, maintaining that uh, that percentage. And so, they're a leader when it comes to uh, to hiring veterans uh, at, at their company. They recognize the value. Uh, you know, Pratt and Whitney, same thing. But ab- absolutely, uh, you know, it's great to see that Washington it continues to invest in, in, in the military spending here in Connecticut. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, you know, we're at the cutting edge of aerospace and defense and submarine manufacturing. Um, and, and those are easily transitionable jobs for veterans, those who are leaving active duty, those who are serving in the reserve. Uh, and and it, and it means good good high paying jobs in Connecticut, frankly. Uh, so yeah, it's a significant part of of our of our plan moving forward, and uh, and 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 also incorporating veterans into into that plan. We're speaking with Sean Connolly. He's a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserve, served on active duty before that. He's an attorney, recent commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Veterans Affairs, and now gubernatorial candidate for my home state of Connecticut. So really interested to talk to you about all of this and also want to talk to you just in general about being a veteran, deciding to go into politics. I know there have been uh, some movement towards more veterans seeking national office recently. How important do you think it is for veterans to continue to serve the nation through politics? And how would you recommend, you know, people go about trying to find ways to do that, whether they're on the left, the right, in the middle, wherever they would happen to be? How should they go about it? And how important do you think it is that we add more veteran voices to the political conversation? I think it's extremely important. Important. I mentioned a few minutes ago about humility, civility, uh, you know, you, we, we don't get things done by, by continually to, to point the finger at each other to say why one side is wrong or, or the other. Sure, we have our differences and ideas, and, and we always will, uh, but there's certainly areas where we can come together, where we can co- compromise, where we can find those central unifying issues to get, get things done for the people uh, of Connecticut. Here in Connecticut, uh, there has, it's been, it will have been almost 30 years by the time this election comes to pass uh, that a, a veteran was elected as the governor of Connecticut. Uh, and so uh, I think it's high time that, uh, that we do elect uh, our next governor uh, who has served in, in, our, in our military, in our uniform, and, and, and across the country, in, in, in the Congress, in local and, and state offices all over. I think, you know, veterans can do that a number of different ways. Of course, uh, in their state houses, as state representatives, state senators, statewide offices, but also at the local uh, local level, you know, whether it be in your in your town committees for whichever party that uh, you're a part, 
uh, or local offices on the Board of Education, you know, your Board of Selectmen or Town Council, uh, local mayors, uh, all those areas, veterans can certainly add value. And it's really because of, of, of the of what I described earlier, why they make great employees, why they make great entrepreneurs. And that's just that, 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 that leadership experience, that team-oriented ability, that mission-driven uh, focus. Uh, you know, they're trained. You know, we, our, our military, we spend, we spend time and energy and money on training our men and women who serve in each of the armed forces. And, and so you come to the table, maybe not with direct training for a particular job, but the ability to, to, to learn very quickly and, and, to, and to take, uh, take a, a dedicated leadership role. And, and it's just, there's a comfort level that our veterans have, you know, just given their, given their experiences on, on, on environments where there's constant change. And environments where you know it, it, it's dynamic, and so any any as, as any company, any any government, local, state, or federal would would do well to uh, to encourage more veterans to to participate. We've been speaking with Sean Connolly, Lieutenant Colonel in the Army Reserves and current gubernatorial candidate for the great state of Connecticut, the Constitution State, the Nutmeg State, all those different names for my home state. And Sean, <laughs> wanted to ask you, of course, the election for governor takes place in November. You've got the Democratic primary before that. So uh, let's look at that first one, the Democratic primary. As you get closer to it, as you continue your campaign, uh, how are you liking your chances to be the Democratic nominee for the, the general election? coming up in november you know i i'm very uh, very positive i like my chances first before we get to the the primary here in connecticut uh, as you know we have a, a convention we'll have the democratic uh, state convention in may uh that's uh, that's more of a, an insider uh, uh track which is you know brings delegates to the table so delegates from across the state come together uh and and, and vote for uh the candidates that uh, are, are before them uh, those delegates, you do need to uh, trigger 15% of the delegates, and that will trigger you to get on the primary ballot. There also is the option of, 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 of foregoing that and, and getting signatures across the state instead. It's uh, over 15,000 signatures. Uh, but right now we're focused on the, on the convention and getting around the state and meeting uh, prospective delegates uh, who will be at the convention in May and, and uh and, and just really having those conversations about what we can do, what I can do as, as their governor, uh, and how we can move our state forward. And, and really coming back to the conversation of um, it's, 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 uh, it's going to be a tough election. And uh, we, we want to have at the top of the ticket a leader who, who really brings to the table something a little different because that's what, uh, what people uh, are, are hungry for. Uh, and, and, and a leader about, uh, you know, a leader who is, is going to get things done and, and work with people. You know, I, I use the example of the dam. The dam is leaking. And uh, uh, are we going to sit here and, and point fig- fingers and argue while, while the town fills up with water? Or are we going to actually uh, uh, do what, what men and women who serve do? And that's really take that leadership role and, and find solutions to, to solve all problems. So I would, uh, I would certainly ask and encourage uh, your listeners to, to visit my website at Connolly, the number four CT.com. It talks about me and my background and has access to my economic plan as well. And you can check out that website there. We want to thank Sean Connolly for joining us here on the morning briefing today, as well as Justin Brown of Hill Vets. You can check out the Hill Vets 100 at hillvets.org. And yes, I am on that list. I'm incredibly honored to be alongside, really, some of the amazing names on it. Go check it out. And then check us out tomorrow. Morning briefing. Have a great day. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. 
In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.